Uh, hey, welcome again to Regen. My name is Kyle. Sid, could I like have 20% less of me so I'm a little less Wizard of Oz? Like the booming, thanks. Um, I, don't, I, want, I want you to be able to hear me and not to be scared of me. Um, hey, welcome. Uh, I, here's the crazy thing about that song that we sang is if you don't know Jesus or you're not like, you've not yet come to a point where you've stepped across the line of faith, which is awesome. Our community is kind of all over the map on that. That song sounds like lunacy. Um, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And yet when you step ac across the line of faith and you start to really take Jesus seriously, you find out that he comes kicking in the door of your life in the biggest interruption possible. And those words begin to be more and more and more and more true, even despite yourself. Like even despite yourself, you're like, that's crazy, but this is how I feel. And that's what Regen is all about, is it's inviting people to take a closer look at Jesus. And I think a lot of people in our community that are newer and stepping across the line of faith have found that Jesus was what they were looking for this whole time. And in a community like ours in Trumbull County, a lot of us had exposure to church, but we just had no idea uh, the depth and truth and beauty of who Jesus is, and yet we get to discover that. Uh, and when that happens, you begin to live a very different life. And so uh, Mitch Goosens is gonna come up here with me. Um, Mitch recently went on a quick short-term missions trip and uh, he wants to kind of just share about that. I want him to share about that. I'm excited about uh, how when we take, serious Jesus, we take seriously Jesus, it's all right, I only have to preach in a minute. Uh, when we take Jesus seriously, uh, it just radically transforms the way we live. So Mitch, why don't you kind of share a little bit about what happened? Um, well, I went to uh, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. I just got back Friday night. We were there for a week. Um, these are just some of the pictures. Um, they had the devastation, this devastating flooding uh, back in June. So about four months ago, um, we were just basically rebuilding uh, people's houses um, in a Christian center that um, they're going to be holding, um, basically housing more mission, missionaries that had come in. But anyways, um, these are just some of the pictures of the devastation. I mean, there was, in White Sulphur Springs alone, there was 15 people killed. And the area, this community where we were rebuilding, there was seven people that were killed just in this, like, maybe half-mile span or so. Um, I mean, it was just, it was amazing. It was my first mission trip, and I just can't say enough how it really really puts you in other people's shoes and just, just really helps, helps you see what's going on around the world, how you can be Jesus to other people. Um, I mean, it definitely interrupted my life with the love and grace of Jesus. So, <laughs> I mean, as you can see here, it's just, it's insane. A lot, most of the people haven't even returned. They're thinking about just abandoning some of these towns. So, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. That was just a Bible laying open just among all the wreckage, <laughs> it was kind of cool. It was open to Psalm 103 through 105. Um, you can see just the whole street. That was the lady's house we worked at. She was 83 years old. Um, she was just very thankful. Um, I just wanted to share one story. Um, we, were, we were watching the Indians game uh, one night, and uh, we were just at this little bar, bar and grill place, and this couple came in, and uh, they asked us, they're like, are you guys contractors? Because they just thought we were down there getting paid to do what we, were, what we were doing, just fixing houses and stuff. And said, no, we're just people that love Jesus and are here to try to make a difference. So he 
honestly couldn't believe it. And um, he's like, well, how did you guys get off work to get down here? And I mean, some people actually took vacation from their jobs to go down just to work some more. And th that just blew the guy away. So we were getting ready to leave the little bar and grill place. And the, one of the bartender actually stopped us and said, uh, that, that man that you were just talking to, he just paid for all 13 of your meals, which is like $120. So he had us come in eat with him the next night and stuff. So that was just, I don't know whether he was a believer or not, but whatever it was, we had an impact on him and his, I guess it was his girlfriend. So that was just kind of a cool, kind of a cool thing. So, but yeah, I mean, if you ever have any interest in going on a mission trip of any kind, I seriously recommend it because it was, like I said, it was my first one. I didn't know anybody I went with, but I've got friends for life now. So yeah, anyways, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be designing some mission, like some super uber short-term experiences over the course of the summer uh, that you'll want to stay tuned for. And then our one thing projects often uh, take the form of a missions trip. Um, when uh, Zach was talking about our November one thing, which we'll have more details even more next week, um, Lindsay, so a couple of things. First of all, we're part of a larger regional movement of churches, about five of them in the Warren mailing address. I get to pastor two of those five churches, Regen on Sunday nights and Grace United Methodist on Sunday morning. So that's when you hear us say the Grace Campus and the Regen Campus. Lindsay is actually on staff at the Grace Campus um, doing a, number, a variety of things from children's ministry to my secretary and my brain. And so Lindsay and I went across the street to Summit Academy in Warren, which is an eight through 12 school that takes kids that no other school wants and that most other schools have kicked them out of that place. And so. Uh, we began to sit down and talk about how could we come alongside and be an encouragement. And they said, would you do a surprise Thanksgiving dinner for our kids on a Tuesday afternoon in November? And we said, absolutely. That was Lindsay and I in a room. Lindsay and I, the last time she and I made a meal for 105 people was never. Um, uh, the number of time, how many, I mean, I don't know how many turkeys that was going to be, but we said yes. Uh, because when we take seriously these prayers, like break my heart for what breaks your heart, help me to see people the way you see people. Help us to point someone to Jesus today, and God interrupts your life with an opportunity to do that, you do it. And so one of the ways that this very quickly might turn into something that we can participate in is, first of all, by helping with some of the food. Uh, 105 people is a lot of mashed potatoes, is a lot of stuffing, uh, and it's a lot of turkey. And if you like to carve turkey, there just might be a Monday night in November where you can come and you get a turkey all to yourself, baby. And uh, so we're gonna be developing that and be creating connections. And, and Mitch went on that missions trip with members of churches across our kind of little regional team, which I think is really good. And we'll be unveiling more and more of those as we go on. Hey, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 tonight, which if you don't have a Bible, this is easy to find in the Bible underneath you. That's paperback. It is the last like two pages. Like just keep flipping. 758. Because there's a concordance, which is a fancy Bible thing we can talk about at another time. We're going to look at be in Revelation chapter 21 as we kick off the series face to face, which is all about heaven. Uh, we'll be in this for a few weeks and it'll be really good. So Revelation chapter 21, but let's pray together real fast, and then we'll get into it, can we? Uh, hey, Father, thanks for, um, Scripture says, the Father loves the Son and has put everything into his hands. 
And so everything that we walked in with tonight is securely in the grasp of your, of your hands, Jesus. Um, the good things, the bad things, and all that in between. And so we ask that you would somehow increase the measure of our trust in you tonight. And that as we turn to heaven and look for what you're preparing for us, that we would come to have more affection, not for it, but for you. And so, Father, wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there you are present. And so be present among us now as we dive into Revelation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I secretly fear heaven will be boring. I secretly fear that heaven will be boring. I don't know if you're at all familiar with post-secret. Post-secret got real big in like 08, 09. And it's a community art project where you anonymously mail an art piece on the front of a postcard revealing some of your secrets. And they range from the hilarious to the terrifying, to the horrible, to the almost downright depressing, post-secret. Uh, and they release a new batch every Sunday online. And I tend to look at them on Sunday night because I think there's something that reminds me of why we do what we do and the secrets that everybody in this room would tell if they could just write it on a postcard and nobody would know who sent it or who it was from. And I found this one last week. I secretly fear that heaven will be boring. I mean, that's not an entirely strange thing to say because most of us have in our heads an image of heaven like this one. Actually, the next one, sorry. Everybody, that's Sid. I don't know if you know Sid, but he's amazing, so high five him sometime. This is a far side cartoon, which I always checked out of the library when I was in middle school. And there's a guy sitting on a cloud in heaven saying, I wish I'd brought a magazine because most of us, in fact, envision heaven like this. We think when we go to heaven, we will get our angel's wings, we will get a halo, we will get a white robe, we will sit on clouds, perhaps with a harp. And then what? If that's what heaven is, then yes, it's probably going to be really, really boring. Uh, because I will tell you what, sitting by myself for a long period of time is not my version of heaven, it's actually my version of hell. Okay, my version of hell is an unending period where I don't get to have anybody to talk to, which is what this cloud is. And yet, these comics and this postcard get to the heart of what we're really asking about heaven. What is heaven like? What are we gonna do there? How will we spend our time? What is so great about heaven? And frankly, what is, is heaven worth me living my entire life differently to attain? I mean, that's the question. Is heaven worth spending your time and your money and your talents differently than everybody else? I mean, you could be at an Indian's pregame party right now and you're in church. Is it, but I mean, if you get to heaven and that's all it is, was this a worthwhile investment? Was it a worthwhile investment for Mitch to take a week off work and go down and be with people he doesn't know and fix drywall for people that he doesn't know if the reward is, well, Mitch, here's your cloud. Uh, we've got a robe built just for you. So the next few weeks, I want us to journey through scripture and mainly the New Testament to answer these questions that we have about heaven. And to start, we're actually going to begin at the end in Revelation chapter 21. So if you haven't flipped there now, do so. I brought some friends with me tonight. I brought with me Scott McKnight and C.S. Lewis and John Piper are gonna chime in, a theologian named Millard Erickson as we look at Revelation 21. Revelation is a man written by, by a man named John, John of Patmos. And John is 
of Revelation is a different John than the one who wrote the gospel and the three short letters in the New Testament. This is a different John, a pastor of seven churches who receives a vision at the end of his life while imprisoned on an island. He receives a vision of what heaven will be like. If you read the book of Revelation, it is almost entirely imagery, metaphor, and simile. And so John is always saying, I saw this and it looked like this and I saw that and it was like this. And so many scholars have tried to look at Revelation and interpret each little symbol, which as a side note, that's not what Revelation is intended to do. Um, When the original hearers of Revelation heard it, they didn't think, oh, that symbol equals this Roman empire. They just heard about Jesus. And that's what Revelation is ultimately about, is about Jesus, this climactic, mysterious vision of the future. And so I want to read Revelation chapter 1 in its entirety, and then we're going to break it apart a little bit. So listen to the words of John in Revelation chapter 21. He writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old earth and the old heaven had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. And he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues, see what I mean about symbolism? An angel with a bowl about a plague, I don't know. He said, come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels and, on the, na- and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city held The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them was written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Just to be clear, the Lamb is Jesus. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And when he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. The 12 gates were made of pearls. 
each, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold as clear as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there, and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry or dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When we listen to Revelation 21, what sticks out to us, what rings in our ears, is not the most important part. What rings in our ears and sticks to us and captures our imagination is not the most important part. What captures our imagination is the bling. What captures our imagination is streets of gold and walls of jasper that are like this, and it's 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400, and it's got these kinds of stones and these kinds of stones and jaseth and amethyst and all these kinds of things. Sounds like a birthstone store kind of vomited up heaven, right? And, and, and what, what intrigues us about John's writing is what heaven is made of. But John doesn't care about what heaven is made of. He cares about who's there. The miracle of heaven is not the material of which heaven is made. The miracle of heaven is who is there. The miracle of heaven is that Jesus is there. The miracle of heaven is that we are with God forever. I've been looking at a variety of texts that we're going to preach. Vanessa's going to preach in the middle of this series. Um, And do you know what the universal good news about heaven is all over the New Testament? It's simply this. We get to be with God. We get to be with God. In fact, this is what the highlights are. Um, I just bullet pointed really quickly the promises. God says his home is now among his people. He says that death and sorrow and crying or pain are gone forever. He says that he's making all things new. He says, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life to those who are thirsty. He says, I will be their God and they will be my children. I mean, these are the things that God says is good about heaven, not that there's gates made out of a single pearl. That's neat. Let's not lie about that. We're going to get there and we're going to be, hey, this architecture is pretty cool, but we're not really going to care. Just like in a wedding, I just did Taylor and Alex's wedding, and when, and when, and when Taylor was coming down the aisle, Alex didn't lean over to me and go, man, the architecture in this place is just something, isn't it? <laughs> no, he was a little distracted by something else, uh, and appropriately so. And so let's look closely at what God has to say about heaven. And in fact, I want to look at the three promises that he makes us about heaven. I've been reading a wonderful book by Scott McKnight called The Heaven Promise. And his point about heaven is this. We are now dealing in mostly hints and whispers. We are now dealing in the world of promises, not fact. And so even Sid asked me, because he heard the sermon this morning, well, if God is this and what's going to happen like this? See, those are our questions about heaven. Well, if this, then that, and how does it logically work out? God never answers that question. God just wants us to see promises about what heaven will be like, one of which is, and the most important which is, is that we will be with God. But I want to look at three promises tonight. First, that all things will be made new. Second, that pain and sorrow and grief will be no more. And third, that we will finally receive the desires of our hearts. So let's talk about how all things 
will be made new. The first promise of Revelation 21 is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Look at this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. This is something we can't miss because this is really the reality of heaven. Heaven is not primarily a place to which you go to hang out with God. Heaven is primarily a place that comes to us at the end of days. At the end of all things, when the story is over, God will bring us a new heaven and a new earth in which we dwell with him forever. Heaven is less us with God, and it's more God with us, which is the exact thing. We shouldn't miss this. This is the exact thing that we're going to celebrate at December, that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. Here's the hints to the last sermon of this series is on the first Sunday of Advent, and it's about how Jesus is the early Christmas present. Jesus is the first taste of what heaven is like and who he is. This world and all that is in it is merely a shadow of what's to come. The old heaven and the old earth in which we dwell, these are merely a shadow of what is to come. That which is evil and wicked and brings us sorrow will pass away and will be destroyed. This is why uh, 2.11 um, says the sea was also gone. Well, that's an interesting little quote, right? The sea was also gone. When I worked at, when I was on staff at Moody Bible Institute as like a, in, on their public relations department, people would email me Bible questions or write Bible questions and I would respond back from Moody's position. And I got an email and it said, subject, the sea will be gone, question mark. And then the, the, the body of the email said, Dear Sir or Madam, Revelation 21 says the sea will be gone, dot, 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 frowny face. <laughs> and then I'm pretty sure it said, I like the beach. <laughs> In the ancient Near East, the sea was the representative thing of chaos and disorder and ultimately evil. And so God is saying, there will be no chaos, there will be no disorder, there will be no evil. I'm pretty sure there will be a beach, okay? I'm pretty sure there will be a beach, but chaos, disorder, and evil will not be a part of it. What is replaced when God takes what we know as the earth and the world and the heavens and puts it away? What is replaced is not just the world that God envisioned at creation, but ultimately a better and more beautiful world. C.S. Lewis, if you've never read anything of C.S. Lewis, you need to start in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and throughout that story, it's like hints and whispers of the Christ story throughout. And in the last, the last installment of that series, the last battle, the seventh book, there's a portrayal of the new earth, which I think is remarkable. And so I'm going to read some extended portions of this. But uh, what it ends with is Jewel the Unicorn laments as Narnia passes away, because you and I hear this, I mean, we're talking about the Rockies and Lake Erie sunsets, and I mean, these are gonna go away. And so Jewel the Unicorn laments, he says, this is the only world I've ever known. I don't want it to go away, this is the only world I've ever known. But then she realizes what she's seeing through the eyes of Lucy, one of the main, character, one of the main characters, and the text says this, those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border, border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass into Archenland and everything. And yet, said Lucy, they're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more like the real thing said the Lord Diggory. 
Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then came back to the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Edensmuir and Brett Beaver's Dam and the Great River and Caraparavel still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. At the end of the book, the old Narnia is passing away and Aslan is creating a new Narnia. And the Lord Diggory, who's one of the main characters, says the eagle is right. The Narnia you're thinking of was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different, as different as a real thing is from the shadow or as waking life is from a dream. The world we live in now is as different from heaven as a shadow is from the real thing, and as a dream is to waking life. And as good as our world is now, it is only a shadow. Lewis writes, the new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. The reason that we love Earth with Lake Erie sunsets and Rocky Mountains and hot dog shop hot dogs. The reason that we love those things is because they remind us a little bit of that which is to come. Heaven is like a forward memory. The promise of heaven is that all things will be made new, that all that is beautiful and lovely and good will be drawn into the new heavens and the new earth by this act of creation. And so we will spend eternity in the majesty of the Grand Canyon. We will spend eternity marveling at the beauty of creation, but it will have more meaning. And that little line, by the way, this is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I didn't know it till now. Every friend that you have that does not yet know Jesus is really looking for a land that they don't even know yet. But when we share the gospel with them, we give them the first glimpse. The first promise is that all things will be made new. The second promise is that our sorrow and pain and grief will be taken away. John writes that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. He says, all these things are gone forever. Listen to me. The promise of heaven is that every tear that you have shed, every grief and pain that you've walked, every death that you have known, all of that will be wiped away. All of it. You will remember them. Our scars do follow us into heaven. When you arrive in heaven, a hand will be outstretched towards you. It will be the hand of Jesus, and there will be a hole in it. 
Jesus still bears his scars in heaven. We will remember our scars, but we will remember them differently. Scott McKnight says, in heaven, we will remember our lives and comprehend them beyond what we can now remember. Our memories will be healed because they will be swallowed by the kingdom story that makes sense of all things. In heaven, you will remember the pain In heaven, you will remember the betrayals and the disappointments and the bitterness. You will remember the fights, the divorces, the deaths, the failed relationships, the unforgiveness, the miscarriages, the depression, the gossip, the slander, the misunderstanding, the cancer, the disease, the tumor. But your memory will be different. You will remember it differently because your memory will be changed and healed by the very hands that bore our pain on Calvary. You will remember different because in the center of the city is a river and on either side of that river are the trees of life and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations and Christ himself will pluck a leaf and be medicine to your soul. You will remember, but it will not hurt. It will not grip your stomach. It won't keep you up into the night. It won't haunt you. Instead, it will be swallowed by the kingdom story that makes sense of all things. The third promise is that we will be given the desire of our hearts. The third promise is that we will be given the desire of our hearts. John says that the desires of our hearts in heaven are fully revealed and set loose. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about, but in heaven, the ultimate and deepest desires of your heart are set loose and given freedom in heaven. And for some, that means being set loose to eternal life. And for some, that means being set loose to eternal torment. Jesus, for those who are in Christ, who have made Jesus their highest treasure, we will spend eternity reveling in that being our truest desire. But for those of us who have spent our lives in rebellion and anger against God, we will get to spend eternity in that rebellion and anger. Look at Revelation 21.6. John writes, to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. In heaven, we who have ordered our lives around Jesus, listen to me, those of us who have made decisions differently and spent our time differently and our money differently and pursued the right kind of person as a, as a spouse or not and engaged in relationships in this way or that way have ordered our lives around a person that we've never seen or met or touched. We who have spent our lives hungering and thirsting for righteousness sake will find that desire fulfilled. That holy desire to have more of God will be set loose in heaven forever to be eternally satisfied. That is heaven. Heaven is the place where, and this is hard to conceive of, when all you've ever really wanted is Jesus and you've ordered your life around that desire, that desire is finally met and you get to live into that forever. On the other hand, John writes that cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt murderers, immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. For those who have spent their lives rebelling against God and disobeying his commands and living in treason to him, those desires will also be set loose. Millard Erickson says that sin is the voice in our lives that says to God, go away and leave me alone. 
Sin is that which says in our lives, go away and leave me alone. And hell is the act by which God says, have it your way. Hell is the place where God says, okay then. C.S. Lewis, I think, is super helpful in this. By the way, C.S. Lewis does all of his writing on heaven and hell, either in kids' books or in his two books examining the worst thing that ever happened to him, the death of his wife. And the problem of pain and a grief observed is when he writes about this. And he says in the problem of pain, he says, perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million. Hell might be less, uh, hell is primarily, I think, a, a place of a prison of our own making. He writes even better, I think. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. Hell begins when you have this, this thing in your life, an addiction, a need, in his case, and what he talks about, grumbling, complaining, and it's always there, but you're somehow distinct from it. And so he says, you may criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may become a day when you can no longer do that. But there may come a day when you can no longer the next one said, keeps going. He says, then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and ever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Hell is a prison of your own making because your heart, which has grumbled and complained, will be set free to be grumbling and complaining for all eternity. And by the end of it, you're not even really human anymore. You're more of a grumble than you are a person. And so our question, right, is how does a good God send people to hell? And C.S. Lewis says, God doesn't send them there, we do. We send ourselves there by living in this open rebellion, that there's something in our hearts that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud, and, and what nips that in the bud is the gospel. What nips it in the bud is that those who are in Christ find that sin has lost its power over them. Those who are in Christ, the gospel says that that hellish part of our nature is not the primary rule of law. Christ himself is the rule of law. And so we that pursue that over our lifetime get to have that forever. Notice before we move on this miracle of heaven that all of us who are looking for our true home and the place to belong, that all of us who are looking for our pain and our sorrow and our grief to go away, and that all of us, all of us who, who, who want just a desire of our heart to be fulfilled instead of constantly quick fixed, all of that is met in heaven. In heaven, the deepest desire, I mean, even in heaven, the desires that we're so tired of, I tried this and it didn't work, and I tried Oprah and it didn't work, and I tried Beachbody and it didn't work, and I tried this and it didn't work. We find a desire that will not leave us lacking. In heaven, we find the pain and the grief and the sorrow, which we so often try to self-medicate to escape from, will no longer be true. And in heaven, we will find our true home and our place of true belonging. And by the way, the church is supposed to be like the pregame. The church is the preview of all of this. So the question ought to be, how do we get there? Or who will be in heaven? So every week we're going to take like a spicy question and talk about it in the middle of the sermon. Next week we're going to talk about, will I be married in heaven? 
what will I know of my loved ones in heaven? Um, at some point, we'll talk about, will my dog be in heaven? Um, at some point, we'll talk about, is God fair? But the first question ought to be, who's going to be in heaven? I mean, we ought to ask that for ourselves, but we're wondering about our grandparents and our siblings and our nephews and, I mean, these people in our lives that we've lost. We want to know who, who's going to be in heaven. John answers this in chapter 22, and I love what he says. This, in chapter 22, he, he writes, No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. That, by the way, is what we will do in heaven. We will reign and we will talk about what that means. What does it mean to reign with Christ forever? Oh boy. The answer to the question, who will be in Jesus, has one word answer. Who will, who will be in heaven is Jesus. Who will be in heaven? Jesus. Listen, I, I grew up in Sunday school, and what you quickly learn is when your Sunday school teacher asks you a question, the right answer is always Jesus. Okay? But this one, this is the right answer. Who's going to be in heaven? Jesus. That is the only for sure answer scripture gives us because only Jesus is the one who lived and died and was raised into the presence of God and will be the center of the kingdom forever and ever. This is the only biblical answer that we have. Who is going to be in heaven is Jesus. Follow up. The rest of the people that will be in heaven are those people that will belong to Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus, those who are in Christ, those who are united to him by faith, those who have made him their highest treasure, those are the people that are gonna be in heaven. And so then what we ask is, all right, well, how do I make Jesus my highest treasure, right? Like, what do I need to do? Like, give me the thing. And I, I wanna be there, I wanna hang out. Some of you were raised by Christian parents and like maybe about age of five or six, they kind of did like a, a prayer with you or you went to an experience and like somebody prayed with you, like if you confess your sins. And so Jesus, I know that I've done these bad things. Or maybe your mom just said like, do you want to be in heaven with mommy and daddy or in hell? And like, you were like, heaven, five-year-old me, you know, I want me a good choice. But how do we get there? Here's my problem. The minute we start saying, here's the four spiritual laws, or here's a little tract, or here's a little thing, we've immediately taken our eyes off Jesus and are looking at ourselves. And so if you, if you want to get to heaven, fix your eyes on Jesus. If you want to get to heaven, find out, how, belong to him. Live like he did. Pursue him. Seek union, union, union with him. The, can I tell you what's blowing my mind about this series too is the predominant way of talking about salvation in the New Testament is that we are in Christ. We are united to him. And you know what happens for the rest of heaven? We just stay united to him deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. If you want to go to heaven, belong to Jesus. And that is as simple as saying a prayer and yet as complex as reordering everything about who you are to belong to him. In heaven, we will see Jesus face to face. I had a professor at college that said, do you know what will happen? When we get to heaven and we see Jesus face to face, we will spend the first 10,000 years on our faces because we will be so blown away by the truth of who he is. And just after 10,000 years, when we begin to, be, begin to mop ourselves up off the floor, we will continue to see the beauty and majesty of who he is. We will get to see Jesus face to face. But that's not the answer that you wanted. The answer that you want is, 
everybody will be in heaven. The answer that some of you want is only those who work hardest will be in heaven. The answer that some of you want is only people who do it exactly like I do will be in heaven. And Jesus does this thing where he says no to all of those answers and just does his own thing and says, I'll be in heaven and all those who belong to me will be there. Which leads to the idea of this, and this is where I want to end. You do not want to go to heaven because there are streets paved with gold. You do not, you can't even want to go to heaven because you'll get to see grandma or grandpa or someone that you love. The only desire that we can have for heaven is because in that place we will get to see Jesus. I mean, the other stuff is going to happen. You'll get to see grandma, you'll get to see grandpa, you'll get to do all of this stuff, but I will tell you what. You ever walk into a party and, some, and you're like, you see your friend across the room, you start moving towards them and somebody like gets in front of you and wants to have a conversation what do you do? You're like, you just kind of work your way through as fast that conversation as fast as possible so you can move them out of the way and go talk to your friend. Let me tell you what, you're going to get to heaven and let's say grandma was right there. You won't care. Why? Because over her shoulder will be Jesus. Grandpa might be there, but you won't care. Why? Because over your shoulder might be, will be Jesus. Because that's the only person, to those of us who belong to Jesus, when we get to heaven, we will realize that's all we have ever really wanted, which leads to this question by John Piper, and this is where I want to end. He says, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, I mean, if heaven was the, the, the Indians are in the World Series forever, if heaven is like the Cleveland Cavaliers are winning the national championship forever, all the activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and there was no human conflict or any natural disasters. If you had all those things, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Could you have all of those things and be sat if you could be satisfied with all those things and not Jesus, what you don't want is heaven. What you want is not recognizable to Jesus. What you want is not recognizable to his people throughout history. What you want is like kind of a vacation that goes on forever and ever. And that's not what Jesus promises us. Jesus says the miracle of heaven is that I'm going to be there and you get to be there with me. And the art of discipleship and following him over the course of our life is reordering ourselves and our loves and our hearts so that that becomes better and better and better and better news to us until when we come to die, all we say is give me Jesus. Until in those last moments, that's all we want is him. Uh, in my wife's extended family, there was a death recently, and uh, uh, it was her sister-in-law's mom, and she had fallen into a coma and wasn't really speaking or talking or anything like that, and wakes up out of this after days and says, I hear the Lord calling me home, goes back in, goes back under and passes away a few hours later. I mean, I don't want to say on my deathbed anything but give me Jesus. That is the quest. That is the art of the life that we're called to. And so we sing and we pray and we attend these Bible studies and we do weird things with our time and we have strange conversations that we never really thought. I mean, at least there's a pinata sometimes, right? But, um, but we do this, why? So that at the end of our lives, our loves and our passions and our, and our desires have been reordered so that in the end, we say, I could get rid of all of that. No pleasures, no vacations, none of the fun stuff, none of the relationships. If it's just me and Jesus on that cloud, I don't need a magazine. If it's just me and Jesus on that cloud, 
I will find everlasting joy forever and ever and ever. And this, these moments that we share together are a taste of that. Let's pray. Jesus, we um, want to know who you are, so help us to see you more clearly. Help us to follow you in all things. Help us to live our lives reordering ourselves so that at the end of our lives we say, give me Jesus. Help us to reorder it so that even tomorrow morning when we rise, we say, give me Jesus. Help us to be reordered so that even those moments when we're alone and we could live outside the bounds that we say, give me Jesus. Help us to say that with every action and thought and word and deed over the next lifetime so that in heaven our desire to know and be known by you can be set loose. We pray in Christ's name, amen.